Support for this podcast is provided by 360 Coverage Pros. If you're in the market for professional liability insurance, then our sponsor, 360 Coverage Pros, has what you're looking for with their top-rated tax preparer and bookkeeper professional liability insurance. They offer flexible coverage options starting as low as $23.33 a month. You'll love their fast, easy, online application and instant proof of insurance. To get started, you can call them at 833-668-0037. That's 833-668-0037. Or visit 360coveragepros.com slash taxnotes to apply online or book a free consultation. That's the number 360coveragepros.com slash taxnotes. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, meeting the Chief Judge. Earlier this year, Kathleen Kerrigan began her term as Chief Judge of the U.S. Tax Court, taking over for Judge Maurice Foley, who we interviewed at the end of 2020, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Since then, the court has transitioned into its post-COVID era and is looking forward to additional funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll hear more about the court under Judge Kerrigan from Tax Notes legal reporter Nathan Richmond in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes international author Filippo Nozeda about his series on potentially corrupt behavior with FATCA and the EU public registers. But first, Nate, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I understand you recently talked to Chief Judge Kerrigan, but before we get into that, could you give us a bit of background on the judge? Well, she spent a fair amount of time working on Capitol Hill, serving in Neal and Kerry's offices before and after a stint at Baker Hostetler. And then in 2012, President Obama nominated her for a 15-year term on the tax court. Now, how does one become chief judge of the court? The judges serving Senate-confirmed terms vote for the chief judge for two-year terms. Before we get to the interview, could you tell us a bit about what you talked about? We discussed further court action related to the evolving pandemic, the rollout of the court's new case management system, and what the court expects to see from the Inflation Reduction Act. All right, let's go to that interview. Judge Kerrigan, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So let's just start off pretty straightforwardly. Tell us about your journey to the tax court. What got you started in tax and how did you end up nominated to the court? I've been with the court for over 10 years now. I started in tax. I first, out of law school, I first worked for Congressman Richard Neal. And at that time, he was on the banking committee. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then he got on the Ways and Means Committee. So I took a couple. I, I do not have my LLM, but I did take a couple of classes at, at night in mm. the LLM program when he got on Ways and Means. And I switched over to doing his tax work. And that's when I st- started doing tax policy work. I worked for him for about seven seven years. or And then I went to Baker and Hostetler and Mm -hmm. was there for about, I think, about seven years. And then I, from there, I went to work for Senator Kerry and did his finance committee work. And I guess it's a theme. I think I was there about seven years. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was nominated by President Obama for the tax court. Sounds like quite a journey. So what's your favorite part about being a tax court judge? Well, I think how I'm going to answer this is I think some people wonder how somebody who didn't have a practice in the courtroom could wind up 
being a tax court judge. But I think being on the Hill doing work for a member of the tax writing committees is very valuable training. Because as you know from following tax legislation, it co- covers a plethora of issues. So I mm. feel like when you're doing that type of work, you can't become an expert in one type of area, mm-hmm. that you're always working all over the code. Because as you know, in tax bills, it's sometimes it doesn't seem like, how is that section in this bill? It mm. seems pretty random or a broad range that often tax bills aren't very focused on just one section of the code. They're a little bit everywhere. And I feel like that's a, that is good training for the tax court because, um, as you probably know, not one judge specializes in any particular yeah. cases. So you can have – I've had a – my shortest trial was 20 minutes and my longest trial I think was six and a half weeks. And so I've gone from $200 of a deficiency – I think that was the 20-minute trial um, – to over – a billion. Well, and don't the judges come from a wide range of backgrounds? I mean, you've got a legislative background and some people come from litigation focused on one or planning focused on other tax topics. It's a plethora. We have a wide range of background and we also have some people who in themselves have a wide background who have done a bit of everything because we've done people who've been on the Hill one person who's been on the Hill, IRS, and private sector. So covers all the bases. And we also have people who have come from the Department of Justice. And you've got one internal candidate, Judge Marshall. Yes. And and we also have Judge Greaves, who was also a a former clerk. Mm -hmm. So is the trial work your favorite part? I don't know. Um, I think the trial work is... is what I, I find the most interesting. But I I would – the trial work, I could take it from the beginning to the end. You know, when you start with your pretrial motions all the way through to your opinion. So that covers a lot of ground. And only some of that have you had to give up since your election as chief judge? I do much less cases. I, I am traveling some. Um, a couple of pre- previous chief judges have done that. And sometimes if – a new judge comes along. I don't expect one in this in the fall sessions I have scheduled, but you can give them, you know, go do that as a training session. But we had a very busy fall, and one of the things the chief judge does is the schedule. And to make the schedule work, I thought, oh, it would help if I, out if I take you two needed, sessions. You needed one more hand, right? Okay. When last I spoke to Judge Foley, it was before the vaccines had come out. And it's been an eventful couple of years. And I also see that the court just posted a webcast on the pandemic and how it's been changing. How has the court dealt with uh, the evolving pandemic since the beginning of 2021? Well, Chief Judge Foley might have given you some of these statistics. But in 2020, we did 12 remote trials because we didn't start doing that towards the end of 2020 gearing up. And then in 2021, we did 100, 122 remote trials. And in 2022, we've switched. Starting in the winter session, we do a mix. And I think um, if you look on the court's website, you'll see we, we still stream the remote trials, but it's a lot less than, than, we, than we used to have. 
And it was hard for me. I was trying to calculate the numbers, and then I and then it was off a little bit. I didn't have, because a couple times a judge will at the last minute change a session to a re- remote session, and a few times that's happened. Um, COVID in in the spring, there were some areas of the country where COVID was high, and there was hardly anything left on the calendar, so it wasn't yeah. really worth um, going to that session. We've had other times where the sessions. Most all the cases have settled, so we've had um, a variety. But we really are back in person to some extent. We've had some special sessions in person, so we've been so we've been moving along. So I will take the opportunity. So I thought that was good timing. I was here. I'll give a plug for the tax courts webinar. Um, there's this. You can register on our website, and I'll be moderating it. And I'll be joined by judges Pew and Toro. But we'll be joined by two attorneys from the IRS and an attorney from the private sector who's active in the ABA tax practice section, another attorney from the private sector who's very active in our low-income tax clinics. And right now, we have we work with about 133 low-income tax clinics. So what we're going to talk about is lessons learned from COVID, what we can improve on, what we should continue to do. And kind of how do we keep moving forward as we're still living with COVID? Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. The lack of qualified candidates continues to cause issues in the profession, but progressive firms are empowering admin with tax automation software to do the heavy lifting. The SafeSend suite will save your admin staff hours on assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, saving money and making staff happier. And your staff deserve the sweet life this coming busy season. Schedule a demo to experience this workflow automation solution for yourself at safesend.com. That's safesend.com. Even in 2020, as you were starting with some of the first of these lessons, the first of these remote trials, there was some discussion about these pandemic tools and how they might be useful afterwards. What is the court planning on keeping? We haven't made any final decision on that. Um, This webinar will help us learn. Not only is it going to help the public, it's also going to help the court learn. But what also, and uh, and that's on Wednesday, November 16th at 12 o'clock. And the important part, I think, is the court is trying to figure out what works best for the taxpayer to make all sure taxpayers are having access to justice and are able to avail themselves of a a court remedy. And so what I think what we're looking at is if the parties both agree Mm. that there can be a remote trial and the judge is okay with it being a remote trial, we're still allowing remote trials to go forward. And on our calendar, each we have at least one remote session each calendar that we're signing cases that need to be remote. So they're really not done by region. And there's still some places where we borrow space. Sometimes um, because courts are behind, we're not able to get the space. So so a few cities, we went to, did it remote this fall and in those type of situation. Have you heard much from petitioners requesting these remote sessions? Is there a large uptake there? And there's some, but I think there's some people who still like to have their 
their day in their day in court. Feels more uh, official. Or I think sometimes they'd rather in person. Does the court have any other either still COVID-related changes or moving from COVID changes in mind at the moment? We're just kind of going forward the way – I think we think things are working the way they are, that we were able to switch to remote relatively quickly so we don't have too far – well, we have a backlog, but that's a different issue. But we were able to keep trying and cases and, and moving along because our normal number of case uh, uh, sessions is about a um, rough estimate about 170 a year. So we were lower than that. And I'd say we're probably going to be you know, back on target closer to that number by the end of 2022. But I think we're just seeing, staying the course for now. So there's been a lot of headlines about the Inflation Reduction Act and the IRS funding. But I understand that you guys are getting about $153 million extra over the next 10 years. What do you plan to do with that money? I think the court's looking into it and just want to make sure that they provide prudent stewardship of taxpayers' dollars. And at this time, just making sure that anything we do is improving on what we do, that taxpayers are able to access justice. And anything that we do do would be in our congressional budget justification. But it wouldn't be to next year's. But we haven't made any final decisions yet. And also, we are also going to have to see how our caseload changes because of the increased money that the IRS has. I think that's a factor we have to look at. So you're not yet decided between more clerks, more staff, more technology, or even more special trial judges, anything like that? No. Okay. So finally with Beckler, there's some clarity and finality on how tax court jurisdiction and the Supreme Court's new views on filing requirement statutes interact. But that's only collection due process cases. What else needs to be clarified? Well, there has been a, a motion filed in a case that on deficiency, and the court will, is addressing that in due course. And while that happens, you're building up a list of cases to that will follow whatever that decision is. Right. We'll wait on the, we're in the general docket. We're waiting on cases until that op- opinion comes out. There's also been some development in whistleblower jurisdiction recently. For one thing, there was Myers, which sort of even before Beckler settled jurisdiction for whistleblower cases. But there's also now Lee, which questions what's actually even a reviewable case, what cases actually can be brought. What is the court doing? We're waiting to see what happens with the litigation in Lee till it's settled law and just following and monitoring all very closely and seeing how that impacts our whistleblower jurisdiction. And even though it seems like we've had some whistleblower cases lately, our number of petitions that came in for 2021, only about 0.2% were whistleblower. So what's that calculate out to? About 50 cases. As compared to what? 96% is deficiency cases. Oh, wow. It sometimes seems like it's more like a two-to-one deficiency to collection due process. On to the update that was just in the offing when last I had a tax court judge to talk to, your new case management system. It's been 
what, almost two years since that been live. How's that been uh, going for you guys so far? It's going. Um, the first aspect of it, we, we did a lot of with the public interface, and now we're doing a lot with the internal interface. So a lot of features are now coming to help like the judge. Like in our old system, we were able to stamp grant and stamp deny orders. We were not able to do that in the new system, but maybe for the last month, we've been able to do that. So we're getting improvements. The next improvement, I think that's going to be on the public sector side, um, on the private sector side, is going to be um, consolidated cases, making it easier to file a consolidated case. But we keep moving along and having improvements. I think we're past the stages where there there's some glitches, but I think it's overall, I think it's been a good change for the court and provides more access. We're hoping um, electronic petitions increases, and that's something we're trying to encourage. What's the uptake been so far? I think it's been about 18%. And you're hoping to end up somewhere closer to, say, 80%? You know, I'm not sure how realistic 80% is, but we just like to see a steady, steadily increase. And since you, until we had Dawson, we didn't take petitions electronically. What sorts of feedback have you guys been getting from the public, the IRS, representatives, et cetera? I think we've gotten positive feedback. There's been a few glitches, but we've been able to address them. And I think people just getting used to the system. But I think overall, it's been a success. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. Ranked number one on the West Coast and number five nationwide, this top-ranked innovative program prepares students to practice tax law at the highest level in the U.S. and abroad. Featuring a low student-to-faculty ratio, cutting-edge technology instruction, and dedicated career support, UCI's Graduate Tax Program helps prepare students for a future in tax law. Program graduates are placed in top tax-related industries, practicing law in many major U.S. cities. Applications are open now. For more information and to apply to this highly selective program, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. So I'm sure I'm not the first one to ask about the court's stance on electronic access to files, and this might actually not even be the first time I have asked, but where does the court stand on electronic access to documents, especially as people have to point out compared to what's available on PACER? And this is something the court's looked into and tries to make it as much available as possible, but the problem is, and we're is the taxpayer identification information, bank mm. accounts, social security numbers, and that we have the, and the, and, the, and as you can imagine, looking at the exhibits in a tax court case, you have a lot of that information. So we're just trying to seek the right balance. Any thoughts to using Dawson or some of the pandemic tools to tweak that balance? Can Dawson like segregate types of documents in a way that would be useful? I'm not sure if it can, and. And one of the problems we have is is the parties not redacting information. Yes, I, I recall uh, Judge Book's presentation from shortly before the pandemic showing all the different parties that failed their redactions. So uh, any thoughts to running another study like that? You know, I think we it's something we all still see. 
And I think right now we've been just focused on getting the the necessities of Dawson and working through the pandemic before we go back and tackle this issue again. Unfortunately, this might be considered a luxury. I wouldn't call it a luxury because we're always striking to make sure we have as much information available to the public as possible, and we are always seeking to strike the right balance. So one glitch that got a lot of attention was, you can correct me if you don't think of it as a glitch, where whole case dockets were getting sealed for any one sealed document in those cases. What happened there, and how has that been resolved? It's still being resolved, but it's been great progress has been made to resolve it. I think there's a few closed cases, which it hasn't been addressed in. But like most judges, including myself, have gone through and we've, with with the help of our docket staff, have just made sure the documents that were supposed to be sealed are sealed and the rest of the case is available. So you're doing the manual sealing of the individual documents before you unseal the whole dockets. We're just making sure what happened in Dawson was when something was sealed, it triggered the whole case file to be sealed. So we're just making sure that the proper documents are sealed. That when you undo that whole sealing, it doesn't unseal the thing you would actually like to be sealed. Yes. Any ETA on the last stragglers of that resolution? Hopefully by the end of the year. But mostly those, as I said, are closed cases. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. It's been an entertaining and illuminating discussion. Thank you. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Taxnets Federal, three practitioners from Greenberg, Glusker, Fields, Clayman, and McTinger describe the advantages and pitfalls of F reorganizations. David Kamen examines the ambition and limits of the global minimum tax. In Tax Note State, Charles Kearns and Charles Capway describe DC's statutory residency law and its associated risks. Breen Schiller and Colleen Redden review the taxability on the sale of pass-through entity interests. In Tax Notes International, three practitioners and lawyers with Withers Bergman consider the use of Canadian registered plans by U.S. residents who are working in Canada and whether those plans should be treated as foreign trusts in the United States. Josh Maxwell and Jared Garfield emphasize the importance and difficulty of international tax compliance, especially given the increased IRS funding under the Inflation Reduction Act. In Featured Analysis, Marie Superior examines the IRS and Treasury's invitation to taxpayers to provide comments on the Inflation Reduction Act's changes to energy tax provisions. On the Opinions page, the commentary editors of Tax Notes share the topics they hope to see covered this fall and winter, such as corporate taxation, environmental taxes, and inflation. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, Here's TaxNet's Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Thank you, Paige. I'm here with Filippo Nozedo, a partner at Mishcon and a visiting professor at King's College in London. Filippo, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. We're here to discuss your TaxNotes International series, looking at what might be termed as corrupt behavior involving FATCA and EU public registers. 
Can you give us a brief overview of that series? I'll, I'll comment on the word corruption in a minute, but the series is about a research that we've done in relation to a case that is going on uh, before the European Court of Justice, the equivalent of the Supreme Court in the US, which has to look at the uh, compatibility of public registers of beneficial ownership with EU fundamental rights. And I think this is clearly a question which is relevant for Europeans uh, because it's about EU law and the EU court, but it also has uh, indirectly relevance for the US because you've got the FinCEN registers, which are not public, or maybe I say not yet public, because we know with transparency, once you introduce a measure, then it's quite easy to uh, to tighten the screw. So I think that uh, this case is relevant globally. Uh, in addition to the EU, Canada is going to introduce public registers in 2023. All of the territories that are somehow linked to the UK, the so-called crown dependencies, uh, the likes of Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man, and overseas territories, the likes of EVI, Cayman, uh, have agreed to effectively introduce public registers also in 2023. So it's a bit of a global phenomenon. And uh, the European Court of Justice, uh, following a number of appeals in Luxembourg, which led to the one case being referred to the uh, Court of Justice, uh, now has to look at the uh, compatibility of registers that contain names and, and, and interest, the nature of interest of ultimate shareholders of EU companies with a right to privacy that in Europe was introduced in 1950, uh, following the horrors of the Second World War, when totalitarian states didn't think much about people's privacy. So we are looking at a clash, in a way, between concepts developed in the 21st century of transparency, uh, following, you know, on, along the lines of FATCA, the Common Reporting Standard, and now these registers, and key concepts of the second half of the 20th century, privacy and data protection. Data protection also uh, something that uh, has experienced a revival following the revelations by Edward Snowden, uh, which has led the uh, EU to um, adopt the GDPR, the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, uh, that most uh, Americans as well are familiar with, which was introduced with a view to uh, um, increasing the level of data protection of citizens. And so here we've got a case where, on the one hand, looks at uh, individuals' right to privacy and data protection. On the other hand, deals with laws that effectively uh, go beyond a mere transfer of information between authorities. It actually puts data in the public domain. My interest uh, in this case uh, stems from the research that uh, I've been carrying out in relation to FATCA, uh, it's now been seven years. We've been looking as a part of that research at internal documents uh, of the EU, uh, which showed that uh, the EU took an approach that uh, queried uh, the data protection implications of FATCA and then changed its mind. And so we wrote a number of letters on that, uh, but that's FATCA. And in relation to this very case, I got uh, access to a couple of documents from the uh, European Commission 
that showed that the European Commission was firmly against the idea of having public registers because the Commission felt, uh, and using the words, that this was unacceptable, not acceptable, that's, that's what the Commission said, without a proper evaluation of the data protection implications. Uh, so the series of articles looks at the uh, documents from the EU. I represent clients in the Luxembourg proceedings, but not in the case before the European Court of Justice. But in a case where, in a case which uh, has an impact potentially on millions of citizens, you can imagine everyone who owns more than 25% of a company in the EU, and there are hundreds of thousands, not millions, uh, is going to be affected by this ruling. And we are aware of political pressures at EU level to push this one through. So I felt that in the absence of a debate on the uh, balance uh, between the uh, interest of transparency and the interest, legitimate interest, fundamental right to privacy, uh, that a series of articles could invite a debate on these very important issues. Well, that makes complete sense, Filippo, and we really appreciate the explanation and, you know, you've given us a nice thorough look into the reasons behind the series itself. So certainly we're, we're sure that readers who have not seen it yet, you have piqued their interest. So we certainly, again, appreciate you coming on the podcast with us today. Thank you. And, and you mentioned uh, the word corruption. Actually, uh, it was something that I first read in the invite uh, for this podcast. And when, when I read it, you know, you invited me to talk about the EU corruption uh, uh, around uh, fat kind of registers. I, I was taken aback and I said, oh, that, that's a strong word. Uh, because for me, you know, corruption, I look at it in a, uh, in a legal perspective and that's effectively bribery. There's a financial interest. And I, I never thought that anyone who is opposing our work in relation to privacy had a financial gain. But then I look in the dictionary and look, uh, English is my fifth language, uh, certainly not my mother tongue. And I looked at the uh, dictionary and the Cambridge Dictionary defines corruption as illegal, bad or dishonest behavior, especially by people in position of power. And I said, mm, that's interesting. And then I looked at the uh, Oxford Thesaurus of English and says corrupt means dishonest, dishonorable, unscrupulous, unprincipled, amoral, untrustworthy, underhand, deceitful, double dealing discreditable, disreputable behavior. And I thought, well, then, then we got something here. Because in relation to the um, uh, to FATCA in particular, we have discovered through our perusal uh, of the uh, internal documents from the EU that the European Commission in 2010, 11, and 12 led a series of high-level negotiations with the US Treasury as a result of the EU's concerns in relation to the uh, interaction between FATCA, that was back then a, a novelty, and EU data protection law. And as a result of uh, those high-level negotiations, the EU commissioned reports, and those reports came back in 2012 to say that effectively FATCA clashed with EU data protection law. The problem was that uh, soon after, within two months, the UK signed the first FATCA agreement with the uh, US, effectively allowing UK banks to work uh, with Americans. And therefore, the EU Commission changed the position from a defense of 
fundamental rights to effectively allowing a level playing field. And therefore, the EU said, look, to EU member states, rush. Uh, everyone should now sign these uh, agreements. But then we come back and we'll try to find out a more proportionate solution. That never happened. And when campaigners and uh, petitioners in front of the European Parliament brought up the issue, EU commissioners uh, went before Parliament and, and made statements effectively negating the existence of negotiations with the uh, US. They said uh, the US, uh, the EU was not part of negotiations with the EU, verbating. And another commissioner said that to date, there is no evidence indicating that there is a clash between uh, FATCA and EU data protection rights. Now, that is clearly in contrast with the evidence uh, from the European Commission. Now, it is always possible, you know, politicians are busy and uh, who knows in 2018 what your predecessor did in 2012. So we put these documents before the uh, commission and we asked them to comment. And they said, look, if, if you got it wrong, just, you know, rectify. They never came back. And actually, they've been resisting all our correspondence. We put in a formal complaint over two years ago. Now, when you have a body that constitutionally is supposed to be the guardians of the EU treaties and, and therefore the defender of the EU constitution, which includes fundamental rights, that do one thing at one point and exactly the opposite at a different point and then actually negate it. Well, I think that we got double dealing here and I think it's disreputable and discreditable. And therefore, I think it does fit into the definition of corruption, maybe not the criminal law sense, but certainly in the sense of plain English as reflected in the Cambridge Dictionary, for example. Very illuminating, Filippo, and we certainly appreciate you clarifying that term. It does seem like that you have landed on what might be the, the proper application of the English word corruption. So again, thank you. And, and, and like I said, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure being here with you and talking to you about this series. Yeah. So you can find Filippo's series online at taxnotes.com and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.